please. Well, good morning. As Orrin mentioned earlier, we had a uh, significant update to our summer's app, and so it's actually been combined with uh, the uh, push pay, which is the giving uh, thing that we can use for uh, contributions and, and special collections and Wednesday night meals. And so they've wrapped it all up into one company. And so with that, we got quite a facelift. And so as he said, if you want to follow along this morning... Uh, on our slides, uh, it won't be where probably it has been. You'll need to uh, either force update your app uh, if it hasn't already, and then you should be able to see it right there on the front. You can just click on the, the uh, sermon notes and be able to see uh, the slides this morning. So we're in the fourth book of the Bible, and so it's called Numbers. And if you have an affinity for math, you may uh, hesitate to want to venture into this particular book just because of the title for it. But if, you have, if you're excited uh, for math, uh, you, you, you may want this, right? And so uh, you look forward to it. But it's really uh, not a whole lot to do with math, uh, just one little segment. And so uh, we've seen that how the Jews refer to their sacred writings not by formal titles like we're used to, but typically by um, the, the first phrase uh, in the book. And so we had in the beginning, we went through that and we saw, we, we looked at these are the names of a few weeks ago. And then we had, and he said, or and he called. And so we had uh, Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and, and so forth. And those are all the English names that have been assigned to these particular writings centuries after they were written. And so today we come to Numbers, which the Israelites referred to as in the wilderness. In the wilderness. And so the English name comes from the record of two census, which are central to this book. If someone asks you to describe the book of Numbers, though, the content of Numbers, you could sum it up with one word, whining. This book is about Whining. And so Numbers is essentially a travel log for this horde of refugees as God moves them from their captivity in Egypt uh, to the, towards this land that He has promised through Abraham's descendants, right? And so God knew, here's the th- God knew when He led them out of Egypt, He was going to be leading them through this desert region. And I know uh, Mike Carter and others have, have spent days in various wilderness journeys. And so you, most of us have probably seen television shows or if we've read books or, or movies or whatever where the storyline involves someone who is lost far from civilization or someone who's uh, abandoned to the wild. And, and so God responds to this, with, with, with him to this short-term severity with this long-term generosity. And so this book of Numbers is essentially this travel log. And so um, when they're isolated and they are alone, there comes a time when any of us begins to be affected by isolation or loneliness. And so there's a weariness that comes from forging for food. And there's a sense of hopelessness that can set in when you realize that, that you are far from anyone or anything. There's this, this vacuum of solitude that wields this tremendous suction, that all is seemingly lost. And so I've never traversed a wilderness, nor have I been lost in, uh, in isolation in some situation. I have, however, been cooped up with small children in a minivan, 
traveling hundreds of miles from and hours on end from my home, trying to make our snacks last for just one more hour and praying that they don't turn on us. I've been through that, which a lot of us have, right? And so whether it's hiking or flying, maybe it's boating, uh, whether it's for pleasure or for survival, when you travel for extended periods of time in close proximity with multiple people, that's going to tend more often than not to lead to short patience Patients being tested by feelings, or the feelings that get bruised for certain when you're in that close of proximity. This is the book of Numbers. This is Numbers. It is an irritatingly close book to my heart because I can imagine what was going on in this situation. So the Israelites are camped out in Mount Sinai. God brings them to the mountain out of Egypt, right? They've been here for about a year. God has delivered His law, and so He's established His worship, and He's organized these people into some sort of civil assembly. So now it's time to claim their land. It's time to complete the road trip. And my family, we love to road trip. And for me, I enjoy the journey as much as I do the destination. But these Israelites were embarking on a road trip that's gone bad. This will be one of those uh, short YouTube videos about road trip gone bad. And so God has established His order for community. He said, here's how I want you to carry out the tabernacle procedures, this worship procedure. So He establishes that. He says, this is how you handle civil issues and this is how you arrange yourselves when we stop and when we travel. So he, he kind of lays out, this is how I want things to happen. And so God is leading them, going to lead them now by a pillar of smoke during the day. He's going to mark His presence and where they are to, to park their tents for the day with this pillar of smoke. And then at night, He will use a pillar of fire to mark His presence with them. And so, in this situation, <coughs> when they left Egypt, it wasn't just these Israelites that were with them. And so in Numbers chapter 9 and verse 22, it says, Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days, or a month, or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with His command through Moses. And then if you look in uh, verse 11 of chapter 10, on the twentieth day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant of the law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran. They set out this first time at the Lord's command through Moses. And so now the Israelites are finally moving. It's been about 14 months since they left Egypt at this point. And so, although we cannot be exactly certain the, the, the land, the footprints that they made going across this land, when you draw a line from Goshen to Egypt to the area of Mount Sinai, it's about 150 miles. So they've traveled about 150 miles at this point. And so when they left Egypt, like I said, it wasn't just the Israelites who walked across that border. There were other people groups who filtered in with them probably also having been enslaved by Egypt. And so they kind of migrated with the Israelites, or, or at least they were, these people were displaced from their homeland by the growing Egyptian kingdom. And so nevertheless, it was a mixed group of folks. And so in Scripture, 
This group is referred to as the rabble. The rabble. And so in a technical sense, rabble means disorganized or it means without order. And so this is an indication, when we read this, this is an indication that they're not native Israelites because the tribes of Israel were organized or they were brought to order by God. And so these folks are outside of the Israelite nation here. And so we have terms in our own society today like rabble-rouser, right? Or we talk about riff-raff. That's a good old word that we use. Talk about, oh, don't get around the riff-raff. Or, or, you know, that's, we understand these to mean somebody who's a troublemaker, somebody who's a, a, a pot-stirrer. And so in light of, of these events in Numbers, we could easily call them a bunch of whiners. A bunch of whiners had mingled in. And so as tired as they might think they are, of these circumstances, of this 14-month journey, God is more tired of their whining. So listen to this stark contrast and attitude here in Numbers chapter 10 and verse 33. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and they traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And so how wonderful. Lord, scatter our enemies. Abide with us forever, Lord. I think one of the greatest satisfactions of a road trip for me is returning home without any sort of incident. There's no check engine light. There's no flat tire. There's no illness. There's no, our reservations didn't go through. You know, so I like getting back home when everything goes well. No health or vehicle issues. Success, right? And so God has, has led them every step of the way for over a year. And then what? Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And then the fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Now, God's not going to pull the car over to handle this issue. This, this scene here is effectively God reaching His arm in the back. See, y'all need to quit your... Why settle down back there? That's basically what this picture I get of God doing this. Because if He had pulled that car over, if He had stopped that car, things would have been a lot worse, right? And so this is a glancing blow. And yet the whining continues. It's only been like three days. Three days they've been on the road. It's the equivalent to, how are we there yet? How much longer, right? Before you even get out of the neighborhood, how much longer? That's what this is here. And so the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, Oh, if we only had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, oh yes, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And so manna was this foodstuff substance that God provided for them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Day after day after day. I mean, this is the desert. There are no crops in the desert. 
and they needed to manage their, their cattle for longevity and for sacrifice purposes here. So God is going to have to be their source of food. And so this word manna, manna, we, we don't know exactly what manna was. Um, it, 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 it's described as it's kind of like coriander seed about the size of a BB. This isn't manna. This is kind of, this is coriander seed, I think. And so it said it tasted like wafers made with honey. Now, I myself, I can eat a whole box of, of honey graham crackers. You know what I'm talking about? I can eat, not a whole package, I can eat a whole box of those in one sitting. And on more than one occasion, I've done that. But when the Israelites saw this stuff, they'd never seen it before. They asked each other, what is it? What, what is it that God is, what is it? And the Hebrew word for that is manu. Manu, from which we get the word manna. This is literally means, what is it? God provided them, what is it? The whole time that He led them through the desert here. And so the people were sick of this stuff. And so they started thinking and they started talking about the, the variety of food that they had. You know, back in, in, during their days of slavery. The good old days, right? And so the problem is they have selective memory recalling historical facts. Because they leave out other facts. The Israelites seem to have forgotten that, that whole slave thing back in Egypt. And they're just being egged on by this rabble that's with them here. And so this is where I start to really relate. Because why is it that the minute thing, that things tend to get a little bit uncomfortable, we start to whine? Just, I mean, the minute it gets uncomfortable. And, and what do we say? Misery loves what? Company. Misery loves company, right? So don't we seem to, to gravitate to someone who kind of feeds our misery, kind of affirms that negative attitude that we have? And so, yes, the wilderness has its drawbacks. It's dry, it's deserted, it's barren, it's ugly. There are no good catfish restaurants, right? But complaining about it makes you feel more miserable. And so when you're in between exits and the goldfish crackers have started tasting like cardboard, it's like, I know you're hungry, but I can't do anything about it right now. We've got to get to the next exit, so be glad you have those crackers. Right? And so that's a conversation that God is having with these people here. When the Israelites complained, they lost sight of their blessings. Oh, they forgot that that menu of cucumbers and melons came with a little price tag called slavery. And so they lost their thankfulness for food, any food, in the middle of a desert. Because complaining in the wilderness is starting this downward spiral that we find them falling into. Because when we complain, we're focusing on the negative. And when we focus, focus on the negative, it leads to despair. And despair leads to hopelessness, which leads to giving up, which leads to failure. And so a little whining can lead to a total system meltdown. And the Israelites have started dripping. <laughs> They've started dripping. But God. But God. We've talked about perspective over the last several weeks here, or our human lack thereof, compared to God's eternal perspective. Right? And so adults, we have a sense of time and space, which children do not. Our perspective is clearer about a whole lot of things. 
We know what the next exit means. But for a kid, that might as well mean the next day, right? And so we have a whole different perspective. God knew. Here's the thing. God knew what this journey would mean, not for them. God knew what this journey would mean for Him. And He took them anyway, right? He brought them anyway. And it was wah, wah, wah the whole time. And so for any parent, in, in, in the struggle in this situation is to keep from letting them what? Keep from letting them what? Wear you down. It just wearing me down. You are wearing me down, right? And so look at Numbers 11 and verse 11. So Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? Moses is now getting sucked into this rabble. What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you, God, tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you promised to, an oath to their ancestors? Hear that? To their ancestors. Why have you, why have you done this to me for their, their... It's them. The focus is on them. So he says, where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes. And do not let me face my own ruin. Guys, this is the words of Moses. These are the words of, if you really love me, God, just put me out of my misery. <laughs> Moses asked God to kill him. Wow! This rabble, this, this grumbling has effectively influenced the spirit of these people all the way to the top. Moses is begging God to kill him so he doesn't have to listen to it anymore. And in one fell swoop, one fell swoop, God could have finally rested his ears. <laughs> you know, Calgon, take me away. But God, but God, God pours out His Spirit on the tribal elders and, and to help Moses bear the burden of leading His people. And then this, verse 18, chapter 11. Tell the people, God says, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before Him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? <laughs> and then Moses goes on to ask, How are you going to pull this off? <laughs> How are we going to do this? We only have so, look at the great number of people. We only have so many animals. And God's like, do you think, do you think this journey has taken it out of me? Do you think this journey has taken, has diminished my power in some way? You think I'm weakened by all of this? God says, you're about to find out. You're about to find out. And God brought up a wind which brought the quail. And Scripture tells us that this quail fell to the ground as far as a day's journey around each side of the camp. And it was three feet deep. Three feet deep 
as far as you could walk in a day. Can you imagine that? No, neither could they. They couldn't imagine it. You want me? All right. All day, all night, and all the next day, they gathered quail. The least among them, the laziest worker, Scripture tells us, gathered 200 pounds of bird. The laziest one. And while the taste was still in their mouth, while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and He struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. Is there anything worse than not getting what you want? Anything worse than not getting what you want? How about getting what you deserve? <laughs> Could that be worse than not getting what you want? The people had left the, the, the lifeless gods of Egypt to be led by the God of life, and yet they fail to acknowledge Him as God. And their heart is still set on what they could or could not do for themselves. And the Apostle Paul is going to, many years later, call this worshiping the God of your belly. Worshiping the God of your belly. It's focusing on what we want instead of what God says we need. And so he says that, Paul says that journey that worshiping the God of your belly only ends in destruction. That's the destination for that journey. And the only glory you receive from that is your own shame. That's Philippians chapter 3. God wants us to be satisfied. But He wants us to be satisfied in Him alone. In Him alone. Let Him satisfy the hungers of our life. Let Him quench the thirst created by the periods of desert that we find ourselves going through. And so these people had let what began as just a murmuring, just some disgruntled outsiders, that let that affect their own thinking and their own acting to the point that they rose up in disobedience to God. They turned against God because they let this infiltrate their minds and their hearts, ungrateful now to His merciful deliverance. Folks, we've got to turn off Fox News. We've got to turn off the local news. We've, you've got to unsubscribe from that email list and you've got to block that friend who's always and only posting negative posts. We have got to turn our mind towards the goodness of God and turn around from the dead-end road of griping and complaining and good old dazing it. Yes, I said that. Because you asked me to be the one that can say it. That's what we got to do because this world is affecting us. It's making us so negative about life that we are losing and missing the ability to witness to the world around us of the goodness and glory of God. See the goodness of God in today. See His provision in today. And see His purpose and His opportunity for you today. Don't listen to the rabble. And Moses' own brother and sister were affected by this. Their attitude turned against Moses. Their family turned against each other. And God turned Miriam into a leper. And yet the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant 
in goodness and truth, God still brought this bunch of ingrates through the desert and to the border of the land He had promised to give them through Abraham so many years ago. And here they are. Numbers chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. Twice in this passage, you hear a term, leaders. God said, send your leaders. Send your leaders out. These were the no-betters. These are the tone-setters. This wasn't the rabble. Don't send the rabble. You send your leaders. These are the what we say gozers. <laughs> That's who He said, send out, right? But, and Moses is the one who sets the tone for all of them. For all of them. So see if you hear what I hear. So yes, God tells Moses, send the spies to, to report on the land. But listen to how Moses presents God's instructions to them. This is verse 17. When Moses sent them to investigate the land of Canaan, he told them, go up through the Negev and then go up into the hill country and see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, few or many, and whether the land they live in is good or bad and whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or fortified cities and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether or not there are forests in it. And be brave, and bring back some of the fruit of the land. Now it was the time of the year for the first ripe grapes. Did you hear it? Moses says what? Moses says, go see whether or not. Whether or not what? Whether or not what, Moses? in light of all that has happened this last year in a few months, could this tone be, go see whether or not this is how God told us it would be. Go see whether or not God told the truth. Am I reading into this too much? Go see whether or not God has lived up to His Word. In light of this section here, are these leaders allowing this to shape their perspective? Well, ten of them did. <laughs> ten of them did. They were gone for over a month. Forty days surveying the promised land. Out spying out the land. Forty days. How long did it take them to harden their heart against the God who had kept them alive in the desert? For two, two years. <laughs> so they told Moses, we went to the land where you sent us. It is indeed flowing with milk and honey. And, and this is its fruit. But the inhabitants are strong. And the cities are fortified and they're very large. And not only that, moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Yeah, it's a nice place and all. It's not safe for us. It's not safe. There are mean, dangerous people there. Oh, it's pretty and all, but there's... It's dangerous. So then they presented the Israelites with a discouraging report of the land that they investigated, saying the land that we passed through to investigate is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people we saw there are of great stature. And now they shape a perspective. They shape a perspective. When we turn our eyes to ourselves, 
And we either naively think we are stronger than we are, or we rightly think that we cannot manage our own lives. In either case, the danger in that is rejecting God as the provider and the sustainer of all creation. And then either foolishly charging ahead with false hope, because I got this, or falling back in desperation. There's no way. That's the danger in that. It's the difference between I can do all things and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because one will never fail you and the other will surely fail you at some point. And so the very ones that you would expect to be encouraging and reminding the people of the greatness of God, instead they fan the flames of the people's own dumpster fire of faith here. How do you respond to the uncertainty of life? How do you respond to the uncertainty of life? Do you hear the, 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 around you, the people around you, do they hear the hope and the reassurance of a God you put your trust in? Or do they know you to join in the hopelessness of those who don't have a perspective of faith? See, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who had alternative voices to this despairing view of the, of the land here. And here's the thing. They didn't dispute the report. The men came back and said, oh, there's, it's fortified and, and there are armies there and there are people that could kill us there. Joshua and Caleb didn't come back and say, oh, they're lying. It's empty. There's nobody. They didn't say that. They did not dispute the report. They saw the same fortified cities. They saw the same giants. They saw the same obstacles that would not be easy to overcome. The report is not disputed. The interpretation is what they disputed. And Joshua and Caleb said, If the Lord delights in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And so I wonder, can you have a rhetorical statement? <laughs> if the Lord delights, if the Lord, de if the Lord delights, where have you been? How far has God brought you? What, what have you needed that God has not provided? Of course the Lord delights in us. He's not brought us all this way and troubled Himself with so much just to abandon you now. Although he wanted to, he wanted to. Remember, Moses pleaded with God, God, don't do it. Please don't do it. I take back that whole kill me thing and please don't kill them. And he, he puts, that, puts it back on God. What do people think of you, God? Who do they think you are? That you brought your people all the way out here just to kill them? Please don't. But God was done with a rabble. He was done with it. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 30. He says, you will by no means enter into the land where I swore to settle you. The only exceptions are Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nine. But I will bring in your little ones, the ones whom you said would be victims of war, and they will enjoy the land that you have despised. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness, and your children will wander in the wilderness forty years and suffer for your unfaithfulness until your dead bodies lie finished in the wilderness. According to the number of the days you have investigated this land, 40 days, one day for a year, you will suffer for your iniquities 40 years, and you will know what it means to thwart me. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do so to all this evil congregation that has gathered together against me. In this wilderness they will be finished, and there they will die. 
and the men whom Moses sent to investigate the land, who returned and made the whole community murmur against him by producing an evil report about the land. Those men who produced the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among the men who went to investigate the land, lived. The wilderness is not a place where great deeds are done for God. No, the wilderness is a place where God meets people. Israel didn't conquer fortified cities. They didn't build temples. They had a mobile pack-and-play tent to worship God in the wilderness. All they did was lapse around Mount Sinai, and, and as they walked, God went with them. He fed them every morning. He gave them water. He, he, he guided them with a cloud. He protected them at night. He spoke to them. He just gave them simple, everyday, loving care, which they usually took for granted, but which were measures of His affection for them. See, theirs was not a lifestyle of achieving something new every day. It was routine. It was rote. (laughs) The wilderness was where their slavery was banished. The wilderness is where their, their major tasks were on hold. And they got to know God in a deeper more intimate way than ever before. And instead of feeling deserted in the desert, you can actually welcome the wilderness. See, that is the Christian witness. That's the Christian life. Yes, life is hard. Yes, disappointment and loss are certainly going to come your way in varying degrees and situations. And no, you are not guaranteed success or health, or longevity. And as a Christian, we do not need to sugarcoat or discount or dismiss the struggles of life because the world will label that as hypocritical if we do, or or uncaring, certainly, or just plain ignorant if we try to do that. But instead, we, like Joshua and Caleb, we must respond with, the Lord delights in us. And He will bring us to a better land, a land He has prepared for us. And all along the way, He will be with us, even in a barren desert. And we can endure by the strength of the promise of the One who has made the rabble mute, the One who has planted a garden of provision in the desert and who has overcome the destructive tools of Satan. And if you want to flip to the end of the story, (laughs) Revelation chapter 2, as... Jesus reveals to John the, 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 the final hope. Set your sights on the promise of God from the very beginning. I will be with you if you want me to. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so you may be tested and you will experience suffering for ten days. Don't mark your calendar. Ten is a lot less than a hundred. He said, you're going to have suffering. But it's not going to to be as long as you think. Remember that child perspective? It's just the next exit. Just the next exit. Remain faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown that is life itself. Israel packs up 
and leaves Mount Sinai only to rebel against God at every step of the way. And God responds with short-term severity and long-term generosity as He leads him into the promised land. And by witnessing how God lovingly dealt with this grumbling, disobedient people, we can find comfort. We should find comfort that at, at, at times while we disobey and grumble against God, He has done more for us and continues to do more for us through Jesus Christ, the lifter of our heads. This morning, what have you allowed to infiltrate your life, infiltrate your thinking? What kind of rabble have you gotten caught up in? God calls you to reject that. Run away from that. Turn away from that. Click it off. Swipe it away. Don't get caught up in it. Because that's how Satan gets a foothold in our hearts and our lives. And that's how he puts a dampening, if not an extinguishing, on the fire of God's Spirit that He gave each of us when we put our faith into Jesus Christ. And so he calls us to repent of that. Ask His forgiveness, which He is still ready to give and to offer. This morning, if you've been wandering through the desert of uncertainty, God calls you to the foot of a cross. The foot of a, the, the, the gateway to the promised land is through death on a cross. It's completely contrary, completely irrational to the world we live in. But it's the way God has done it. That His Son would come to this earth, put on this flesh, expose Himself to the rabble. Certainly, irritatingly so. And endure faithfully to His Father because of His love for us. And through Him, we have eternal life by being baptized, dying to ourselves, meeting Him in the grave of baptism, raised up again in newness of life, washed clean of the sins of our former life, receiving the gift of God's Spirit to lead us, guide us, remind us, encourage us, comfort us every step of the way added to Christ's church where we find ourselves assembled among a body today, escaping the rabble, encouraging, reminding, imploring, sometimes correcting. This morning, God waits for your response. Will you hear His voice? over everyone else's. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. If we can help you in any way this morning, will you please count?